Hello, I'm Georges Collinet with this week's Afropop Worldwide podcast, Madagascar's American Diaspora, with Wendy Wilson-Fall and your host, Banning Air. When we tell the origin stories of African Americans, we mostly focus on West Africa and to some degree Central Africa. And it's true that the vast majority of African captives brought to our shores came from these areas, but not all. On this podcast, we meet an African American scholar who's both studied and lived a different history. That of people who came to the United States, not from Mali, Senegal, or Angola, but from Madagascar. My name is Wendy Wilson-Fall. I'm an associate professor and program chair for Africana Studies at Lafayette College in Eastern Pennsylvania. And my work has been on exploring the possibilities of a Malagasy diaspora that existed in the Atlantic world before World War I. Even before that, Dr. Wilson Fall finds evidence of Malagasy people coming to America before the Civil War. My grandfather was the grandchild, or the great-grandchild, up for debate, of an immigrant who came from northwestern Madagascar to the United States as a free agent, perhaps as a merchant, and uh, who settled in Baltimore, which at that time, of course, was a center of trade, imported a lot of tortoise shell and spices and so forth as did Connecticut. So he came to the U.S. in the 1820s, and uh, they had a fairly large community of people of uh, Malagasy origin in Baltimore and Frederick, Maryland. So as I was growing up, I just thought we were the only ones with that history, until my aunt, Sheila Gregory Thomas, and I participated in a conference given by the Washington Historical Society. And lo and behold, nine different people showed up to listen to the paper who waited for us at the end, who also claimed to be of Malagasy descent. So after that, I became aware that this really was a much larger thing than just my singular family story. At first, Dr. Wilson Fall thought of this as a personal project. She set up a website and an e-list for people who believed they had Malagasy ancestors too. People started sharing stories. And then, in 2001, the Library of Congress hosted a conference in collaboration with a Malagasy scholar, Emmanuel Tehindra Zanarivelu. That's when Dr. Wilson Fall realized she was onto something that needed to be studied more seriously. Her subsequent research shows that Malagasy people came to the United States in four or five separate periods. The first period was the 17th century in the 1600s, where you have records of Malagasy being brought in as slaves, both to Canada and to uh, New York under the Dutch. There's been no reckoning of the numbers in this first group, but as time goes by, the picture becomes clearer. The second wave came in the 18th century, around the time of the Boston Tea Party, when British and American interests were fiercely at odds around the world. Americans were not allowed to trade in the Indian Ocean. If they wanted an Indian Ocean product, they had to buy it in London or Bristol. 
But because of their lobbying, there were two periods, I think, between 1670-something and 1693, and then again 1712 to 1721 or so, when the British Parliament actually legalized direct American trade to the Indian Ocean. So one of the results of that was several boats that left with the explicit intention of going to Madagascar to pick up labor and whose investors were mostly the big of uh, Virginia planters like Robert King Carter and uh, John Randolph and John Baylor would be another. So uh, what happened is that the ships went directly to Ile Saint-Marie, uh, St. Mary's Island in the northeast of Madagascar. So we have one record that between 1719 and 1721, 1,400 people from Madagascar were imported into Tidewater, Virginia, which is actually a very big number uh, for three years. So if you look at the other research on Virginia, for example, by Lorena Walsh, who's a historian at Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, you realize that not only were they coming to Virginia, but of those 1,400, fully a 1,000 of them went to one major river port, which was the York River. So this suggests that there was a critical mass of people of Malagasy origin in a fairly delimited uh, geographic area who were owned and managed by a rather small and rarefied group of people, which increases the likelihood that they would have met each other, carrying out tasks for the various plantations they ended up on perhaps seeing each other as messengers, as horse drivers, as boatmen. And because of this, people were able to sustain at least some idea about having ancestors from Madagascar and that Madagascar was a unique uh, geographic place that was not the same thing as the African continent. The next group of people show up in the 1820s. It's kind of ironic. It's the people who came as slaves that we have a record of in terms of their arrival because they were unfortunately classed as commodities. So even though we don't have lists of their names, we know what ships they were on, we know who the captains were, and to a great extent, we even know who bought them so that we can say, oh, they were most likely at X, Y, and Z plantations. Now, by the 1920s, slavery was supposed to have been outlawed, and a lot of these Malagasy, including Dr. Wilson Fall's ancestors, arrived as what she calls freed merchants. They came voluntarily as workers, usually with the support of a white patron or trading partner. I have stories like that from South Carolina, from Alabama, uh, from my own family in Maryland. But during the same time, other less fortunate Malagasy were still being brought here illegally as slaves. At first, Dr. Wilson Fall was hesitant to even consider that possibility, but it became inescapable. I kept getting these stories where people only counted back to the 1830s. And at first I was like, oh no, this isn't possible because Atlantic slave trade was outlawed in 1808 and most of that was achieved by 1812. 1814, 1817, could this be true? Maybe these people have confused the way they're counting back their generations. 
But when I got so many of those kinds of stories, I realized that I just had to be a little bit more flexible. There's something here that maybe hasn't come to light before. And I was even able to um, identify geographic clusters of stories of people who have ancestors who arrived as slaves after 1825. Now, these illegal slaves apparently came in small groups and were dispersed from Alabama and Mississippi all the way up to Ohio. Historians now believe that somewhere between 12 and 50,000 slaves were brought here clandestinely after the trade was officially closed down. So we have all these different narratives of how Malagasy people came to America. And Dr. Wilson Fall adds one more. Those who came with the support of Christian missionaries who were highly active in Madagascar during the 19th century. Through all these scenarios, by the dawn of the 20th century, there were prominent African Americans who linked their heritage to Madagascar. Andy Ratsoff is the greatest example. He was an early blues player. At that time, they had sent an African-American to be the ambassador to Madagascar. His name was Waller. And Ambassador Waller became extremely involved in highland Antananarivo politics, uh, so much so that his wife and daughter were on intimate terms with the royal family. And eventually, his daughter married a Merina prince from the royal family. And Waller himself was accused by the French of meddling in Madagascar politics. The daughter fled to Washington, D.C., where Andy Ratsoff was born, I believe about uh, 1905 or something like that. And Waller had to wait for Grover Cleveland, I forget which president, had to extricate him from a very difficult situation. So there was that trickle of movement back and forth between Madagascar and the U.S. for really a very long time, since the time of the pirates. Wikipedia puts Andy Ratsoff's birth in 1895. That was the time of the French invasion of Madagascar, and in the chaos, Ratsoff's princely father was killed, and his mother, pregnant with him, fled at age 15. As for Ratsoff's career, he became an accomplished Tin Pan Alley lyricist, collaborating with the likes of U.B. Blake and Fats Waller, no relation to his diplomat grandfather, John Waller, as far as we know. Among hundreds of songs Ratsoff co-composed are Honeysuckle Rose, Ain't Misbehavin', and this one, Nobody Knows, heard here, apparently, in Ratsoff's own voice. What a funny feeling all the day long Nothing is appealing, something is wrong My poor head is reeling, I'm so unhappy and blue Andy Ratsoff's story is remarkable, but it's an outlier. Most of the stories Wendy Wilson Fall has uncovered involve the history of slavery and the sensitive and tricky process of preserving memories from a past obscured both by distance and trauma. It became clear that there was a large number of slave descendants in Virginia 
who claim a Malagasy ancestor, a lot of them. And they also had an idea about what people from Madagascar looked like. They all have stories about explicitly learning. They had an ancestor from Madagascar and being sat down as children with their grandmothers, uh, mostly grandmothers, and being sort of instructed uh, to know that they had ancestors from Madagascar, they should never forget they have ancestors from Madagascar, that they should be proud, they should carry themselves a certain way because of this. So there are certain surnames that you can even associate with these family clusters like the Bundy family, the Lee family, uh, Carter. Wendy Wilson-Fall has written a book from all this research. It's called Memories of Madagascar and Slavery in the Black Atlantic. And it comes out in 2015 on Ohio University Press. There's a central paradox in the stories Dr. Wilson-Fall has collected While grandmothers may have encouraged children in their families to remember their Malagasy origins, a very different message came from the overall African-American milieu. There's a general pressure in the black community because of the problems that they were living for people to be silent about their differences so that people could unite sort of for their own survival. So it wasn't an environment that really encouraged people to institutionalize their differences. Uh, Secondly, there is a sort of a halo or a little mist of a prejudice that follows these stories because Malagasy people were different. They looked different. And um, they insisted that they were different. And people didn't always like that. Sometimes Malagasy people got special treatment from whites, choice jobs, even their freedom. And as you might imagine, this both bolstered their pride in their heritage and also made them wary about displaying it publicly. Dr. Wilson Fall noted that some of those who arrived in the 1820s and 30s kept Malagasy names in their families and even memories of certain rituals aimed at honoring ancestors, the core of local Malagasy religion to this day. I asked Dr. Wilson Fall what memories or practices her own family had passed on to her. Oh, well, like any good descendant of Malagasy, it makes me nervous to talk about it. But (laughs) I can say that my cousin told me that in Frederick, Maryland, they used to have big family get-togethers in July where the men would wear sashes, the women would undo their braids and they would sing particular songs, they would dance in a circle, and that they had a flag that had particular colors, they had even a sword that was in quotes from home. And I actually went back to talk to a neighbor to see if I could hear about this from somebody else, because my cousin, when I was talking, he was in his 60s, so he's referring perhaps to the 1940s when he's remembering this. And I talked to a neighbor and she said, oh, it's true. And my mother was very frightened of them. She wouldn't let me go over there. And I had to watch it through a hole in the fence. 
No surprise, Dr. Wilson Fall finds a big difference between stories of descendants of Malagasy brought here as slaves and those who came as freed merchants or by other means. There's the story of a woman named uh, Rakekata, and she came with her family from Madagascar in the 1830s to Virginia, to Richmond, and then the man who was the captain, or in their memory was the captain, helped them get to Elyria, Ohio. And it's a very interesting story because on one side of the family they talk about the church that they sort of, I don't know if they established it, but they certainly were the major actors in this black church in Elyria. They also mention having visitors that came to see them from Madagascar. They talk about furniture that they brought with them. Uh, they talk about how their parents wouldn't let them play with other children much and tell them, you know, you can't just go out and play with anybody. You're from this royal family in Madagascar. Another relative from that same family uh, described to me, and this is in the 20th century, how she was walking with her mother once and she asked her mother, Mommy, what religion do you have? What do you believe? And the mother looked around. They were walking down the street and the mother looked around and said, I see people that other people don't see. I belong to the Church of the Living Dead, she said. So you can see that because they had created community, they still had visitors coming, things like that. There were still some beliefs that uh, remain. <laughs> Dr. Wilson Fall finds a number of Malagasy who arrived in and around the 1830s who went on to establish black churches, especially in Virginia. She wonders whether any aspect of the distinct vocal traditions of Madagascar may have echoed in the singing in those churches. This is just one of many questions she's left with after years of researching this little-known history. In the early 19th century, there must have been some group of well-to-do whites who facilitated the integration of people from Madagascar into the church hierarchy among the Baptists. Did they do it on purpose? Did they say to themselves, gee, I remember old Auntie Mama, who was my nurse when I was a little baby. She was from Madagascar. Maybe we ought to get our black people some more Madagascans. You know, I don't know what happened. There's a lot more research that could be done in Virginia in particular. I agree with Lorena Walsh and others who argue that even in the United States, there are pockets of particular cultural influence. Gwendolyn Midlow Hall has been able to work on that in the case of Louisiana. And it may be that there's a particular way that uh, chordophone instruments are played in the Chesapeake that reflects the presence of Malagas. There is a woman named Harriet Oppenheimer. She believes that there's an influence of Comorian music in Mississippi blues. And to me, Comorian music is not very far from Malagasy music. It's a sort of a cultural complex there. So um, I think that it's not too late for more research on the subject, which would certainly also require the participation of ethnomusicologists, it would seem to me. Well, there's your cue, young ethnomusicologists. Meanwhile, in our ever-shrinking world, Malagasy people continue to arrive on our shores, including musicians. 
And we leave you with new music from one of those. Razia Saeed lives in New York City now, but she was born in Antala, northeast Madagascar. Her second album, out in 2015, is called Akori, which means welcome or how are you. Here's a taste. Thanks to Wendy Wilson Fall for sharing this amazing research with us. You can read our complete interview with her and find lots more Hip Deep in Madagascar resources on our website, afropop.org. You'll also find a list of the music in this podcast. Hip Deep in Madagascar is made possible with support from the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and our Kickstarter backers. Thank you all. Engineering for this program by Michael Jones and Jeffrey Fott. Remember, the Afropop podcast is made possible by listeners like you. If you like the stories and the music you're hearing here, please support us. Just go to afropop.org and click on Donate. We really appreciate the support, and every bit helps. For Afropop Worldwide, I'm Banning Aaron.